0: Governor Jared Polis. Hello, Justin. How are you? Good. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you. It's good. To, good to hear your voice.
0: It's good to talk to you too, um, and I'm happy to call you Governor. It's uh, <laughs> it's oh, funny. Thank you.
1: It's a it's, cra- f- it's a great it's a great job actually. It's um you should you should look into it someday. It's because it really <laughs> the executive authority is so different than the um than legislative and law writing. Um, they're both. They're both super important, but it's just kind of a whole different perspective on things.
0: You know, you're one of the few people I miss from Congress. Um, People always ask me, what do I miss about Congress? And I I often say I don't miss too many of my colleagues. Uh, You know, there are some good people there. There are a lot of people that, you know, I don't really care for. And I miss my staff a lot. I don't know how you feel about that. That's that's a hard thing to do. And, And maybe some of your staff came with you I don't know
1: yeah it's actually great so i you had the best staff by the way justin and just great like alumni over time and um you know you could actually Part of what, you know, judging somebody is like how good a, a boss they are, right? And there were some members, you might recall this, that were just notorious for being horrible to people, right? And like, right. they're just bad person. Um, no, I actually got to take uh, a number. Some of my staff and former staff are now some of our policy people here. And if you have any alumni that want to move to Colorado, we always are looking. So uh, seriously, send them our way. We'd love, to, we'd love to find some roles for some of them because you had really a great staff. You attracted great people
0: yeah i had I had some staff who were from Colorado actually originally um but uh I don't know if they're looking for a job right now or not, but you know um one of the interesting things about you and you were married in the last year first of all so congratulations thank on you that.
1: yeah we're coming up on our our first anniversary it'll be this september we were, we've been together you know over eighteen years but um yeah yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> and and you've made a lot of history for being one of the uh, first openly gay members of Congress. Um, I think perhaps one of the first openly gay governors.
1: Yeah. I think the, um, there was one, you know, New Jersey that like came out midway through his term, not in a good way. And then um, Kate Brown of Oregon identifies as bisexual. But so I'm the first, yeah, gay person elected governor as already being out.
0: So like, it's remarkable to me because it seems to me like such a normal thing, like having a gay governor is not, does not seem like a big deal, does not seem like a big deal to have a gay congressman. But 10, 15 years ago, that would have been a big deal. How, how does it feel to you in terms of how things have changed and how far maybe we still have to go?
1: Yeah, I'd say it was a bigger deal back then, which was kind of weird. So this was – I was in um, 2008. I think you came in 2010, right? Yeah,
0: that's Yeah, right. so
1: I was one t- one term before. Um, and it was only, at that point, uh, Barney and Tammy, right? You only needed first names for the people because they were so kind of well-known. Tammy Baldwin's is now a senator from Wisconsin. Uh, Barney Frank's now retired. He's a character. You got to know him a little bit during his yeah. time there too. Um so it was a novelty uh, at the time, and um, it, it was it was it was you know I, I think by by the end of it by the time I finished serving there were more LGBT members than I can count I couldn't even tell you Justin how many there are now in Congress it's probably not parity with the general population but it's like eight nine ten I don't even know it's just like a lot um, and uh, you know again it's still not parity but like I what maybe what. I don't know, you know, 5% or so of the population, but it also, you know, there were, there were closeted members that you and I knew too, right? Some later came out, like it was just sometimes, especially on the Republican side, not talked about as much, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, on the democratic side, uh, it was, you know, it was talked about more, but it was, um, I, I think it's become, uh, the culture has moved on a lot from then. I mean, I, 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 there should be frankly, you know, openly gay Republicans who are able to get elected to Congress too. And, uh, it depends on the district, but certainly from suburban districts, that really shouldn't be an issue.
0: Yeah, you'd think so. So you were a member of the House Liberty Caucus, and this is a a libertarian caucus that I was the head of. And it's not to be confused with the House Freedom Caucus, which is a very different thing for everyone who's listening. Um, the House Liberty Caucus was a libertarian caucus. It was to bring people together who cared about libertarian issues um, oh, especially civil liberties issues we had a lot of um, civil liberties votes that we were um, advocating for or against depending on the issue and your score in the house liberty caucus was very good believe it or not and i don't even think you knew this but i kept a scorecard <laughs> of of every member of uh, the House of Representatives. I had their score for how libertarian they were. And while it's it's not a perfect system, um, it is, in my opinion, a pretty good measure of where they stood. And the scores dropped very quickly. So like at 100%, say was... You know, I was 100% because I was doing the scorecard. So there's no getting around that.
1: <laughs> and, and you deserved it. You, you earned it anyway. So. We
0: could debate that. Yeah. But you, were, uh, you got 69%, and that gave you the eighth highest score in the entire House of Representatives. Now, for comparison, because people often talk about other governors like Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis had 20%. So you had 69%. He had 20%. You were eighth. In the House of Representatives, he was 264th. Now, there were a lot of issues we covered: civil liberties, privacy, um, NDAA indefinite detention, yeah, warrantless
1: wiretaps. I remember a number of things like that. Yeah,
0: crypto uh, wars. So, what are what are the principles you live by as an elected official? What?
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for doing that, by the way, the Liberty Caucus. It was really great because, uh, you know, a- a- as you remember, there was too little bipartisan conversations because like a lot of these things and, y- you know, you were probably in some on the R side, like Freedom Caucus at times. I was in New Dems and these other things, but they were not they were not bipartisan. And they also were just so broad. They really didn't. They, they were fun. I enjoyed, you know, them, but they didn't they didn't like mean a ton in terms of Moving the bar um, you know that was a great group of people that we had there. Um, they were some of the best members i thought and and most of them are gone sadly justin i i, it, yeah. I, I and I remember you had those those little pins made up. I still have mine. yeah those are great those are wonderful um, Liberty caucus pins you know i think it's it 's always about you know the the parties have their kind of block votes on things. And sometimes both parties are the same. Well, then you really better watch out when they're like, what are the Republicans and Democrats <laughs> working together to do to me? Um, and that's when, you know, you kind of look at, wait a minute here. Does this make sense? And there'd be and, and you know, a lot of those things would require two thirds. Those were, you know, those were the suspension bills. And so the question was, can you get n- enough Republicans and Democrats to say, wait a minute, let's slow down. Maybe have some amendments conversation about it. Um, and and we were successful a few times. We were you know unsuccessful m- more often, but mm-hmm. uh, absolutely a few times successful. But it was really about creating a space where we centralize kind of freedom and and liberty as a value. I mean, both parties try to speak to that, but then some of their policies don't, right? And so um, these are things where um, we we tried to elevate that as a critical value. It's all about you know weighing different values and merits of of things. Uh, and and there were times where you and I, I'm sure, disagreed too. But it was really about through the Liberty Caucus, how can we at least elevate this particular value, which is often one of the last that Republicans and Democrats kind of focus on in a lot of their wor- a lot of the work there.
0: Yeah, why do you think Republicans get more credit credit as defenders of individual rights? Because you had a very um, outstanding voting record as someone who defends individual rights you were there every day i i i know like i worked on these issues day in and day out and i know who my allies were who i could count on to stand up for people's rights and you were one of those people but typically republicans get more credit for that and why do you think that is
1: well they they talk about it more I, I don't think the policies are better um you know I mean, it just depends on your policy right like on things like when there were floor votes on marijuana legalization, you had almost every Democrat and very few Republicans, obviously choice for women you know also very lopsided but a lot of on the on the issues where Democrats are good on freedom issues, they don't always talk about it as much from a freedom lens, right they might uh, talk about it from uh, other perspectives. But I think that kind of individual freedom lens uh, was something that Republicans tried harder to apply to an agenda that didn't really fit with the value, but they tried more um, than, than uh, in terms of selling their policies you know, in that vein. So, you know, on the actual policies it obviously depend, I mean, traditionally, of course, Democrats are better on personal freedom. Republicans have been historically better on economic freedom. But not, not by any means have Republicans been good on economic freedom. And many Democrats have not been necessarily good enough on personal freedom. So even where they kind of espouse to be the center of those freedom-based you know, based discussions, um, they've, they've often come up short on the actual policies.
0: Now, being a governor, I'm guessing, is very different from being a congressman, yeah, what, what to you are the big differences? In fact, when I've reached out to you on things, I've always been a little bit nervous that your schedule's crazy and like when when you're dealing with members of Congress, you kind of know what their lives are like. Are you under constant supervision and monitoring as a, as a governor because like you are the governor? Like they have to they have to make sure that you are in some sense. Uh, protected, shielded—you um, don't say the wrong thing at any time. Whereas a member of Congress kind of can go their own way, and it's a little bit more of every person for themselves.
1: It's re- it's really different, just from that individual. Like 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 an example is as a member of Congress. You remember this. We would fly all over every weekend, like back home, obviously most. But like, okay, fundraiser in New York, fundraiser in Las Vegas. You want to study something on the ground. I went to the border. You know, I don't know if you did. I went on a CODEL to the border. Mm-hmm. I went on internet. You know, you're always kind of learning, doing stuff, observing. As a governor, you really are very tied to your state. Like in Colorado, and it's no exception, many states are like this. You're technically not the acting governor when you're out of state. You no, know, I have a lieutenant governor I chose, and that's fine. But still, you are you are not supposed to be out of state very much. Um, So I, you know... Two or three times a year leave the state. And then, yes, the executive detail in every state, there are wonderful dedicated state troopers that are uh, dedicated to this. And so the other thing you notice is I don't, you don't really drive anymore. I mean, as congressmen, and maybe most people listening think congressmen are driven around. No, I mean, maybe sometimes, <laughs> but generally you're driving yourself, right? Like I would park my car at, at, at uh, you know, Reagan National Airport in the parking lot, and then I'd get back, you know, the next week I'd get there and drive it. Right. And, Um. So, like, yeah, you don't. You you are, which is actually kind of nice from a sense because the brain space you have towards getting places and parking and getting in, like, there's just not a lot of time for that, right? Like, because you're always managing a pretty a huge enterprise. Like in Colorado, thirty-one thousand employees. We have smaller state government per capita than most states, which is great. But like, still, it's a it's a it's a you know it's a lot to run.
0: Yeah. So, is it hard to feel like you're just a regular person? Because when you're when you're a member of Congress. Yes, you've got the position and the title and all that, but if you want to just go to the movie theater or, you know, go to a restaurant or whatever, you can do it. People might recognize you, they might say hi, but I I feel like maybe if you're a governor, it's like too big a deal almost.
1: It was one advantage of the mask wearing era when enough people were wearing masks <laughs> and I could, I wore one and nobody knew who I was in the grocery store. Um, so that was one, um, unexpected advantage of that. Um, no, I do go, uh, you know, like to, we are, our kids are, you know, 10 and eight now. You, when you last saw them, they were much younger. So our daughter does like, uh, little league and soccer. So we go to those things, but it's, yeah, I mean, people are generally, generally polite about it like they're not like you know coming up to you too much but it, and occasionally they come up to you in a nice way and say thank you but uh yeah it is harder to get out harder to do things executives and you look at presidents you know whether it was Trump or Biden um there's absolutely that kind of uh challenge around maintaining being one of the people when you're in that kind of executive role that's different than congress now people think congress people have that challenge and some do right you and i know congress people that became sort of of the institution and uh, you know, went to their district occasionally and and but didn't, you know, they went there like for parade floats, not to like be out <laughs> right. among the people. Um, and, and so that can happen to members of Congress. I don't think that's the way you or I ever approach it. I mean, we were huge on town halls and people coming up and I didn't mind it. You know, the grocery store and just like all over the district in town, Congress people are pretty close to home because there's about, you know, one per what, 750,000 people or so. Um, and they really value those communities high, so it does feel different. You need more of an effort to connect. I still love social media for doing that very vibrant face page um, you know Facebook page and Twitter and you know i respond i can 't respond to everybody, but i I read it you know I, I try to stay on all those platforms to keep up with
0: people so what about partisanship at the state level versus federal level when i when I went from the state house of representatives to the u.s house of representatives i did notice a big difference in terms of how things operate Um, when i was in the state house i was able um, more easily to work with people on the other side because it was just more accepted culturally in the state house of representatives in congress it became more of a you know that's that side and this is our side what is it like uh as governor how do you experience that
1: yeah. So and and I can only speak to Colorado because I'm just not familiar with, you know, every state state legislature. But, yeah, ours is very far less partisan than Congress. Um, in fact, all of the most of the pretty much all the marquee bills, like 95 percent of the bills I signed were bipartisan. But many of them like our property tax cut, uh, you know, bipartisan sponsorship, right, like leisure, um you know, there's some bills that might have just a few people um, from both sides of the aisle supporting, but there are also these, a lot of efforts. And we have something in our state, which is great. I, I always thought, in fact, you remember Doug Lamborn, one of the congresspeople from Colorado, he's still <laughs> there. I didn't co-sponsor much with him, as you can imagine, but one of the ones we uh, sponsored, what I think it was my first or second term, is what we call gavel reform. Because what we have in our state legislature is every, leg- every bill that gets introduced gets a hearing and a vote in committee. And then the flip side of that is they have to put a a limit on the number of bills you can do. It's five per legislator. But you remember Congress, you could do 20, 50, 100 bills, but zero of them got hearings. Like, what's what's the point? (laughs) Like, they're just like a press release. Like, they never got a committee vote uh, and a hearing. In our state legislature, any member of the minority party or majority party can introduce any bill and that it will have its day in the sun where witnesses can come in and they actually will vote the bill up or down. And I think a legislative body would be a lot more functional about just even raising issues if they had that. It was very hard to raise issues in Congress, you know, uh, to get a hearing or a vote.
0: Yeah, and I've always believed legislative bodies should be a place of discovery where people bring their ideas, you debate those ideas, you amend the legislation, and you discover the outcome. Um, what what happens too often in Congress, and I think you'd agree, and you were on the Rules Committee, correct? So, uh, I, I think you'd agree. What what happens in Congress is so much of it is top down. It's someone at the top says this is what we're going to do, and that's the way it's going to be. There's no changing it. Um, if you change it, you have to go through a bunch of hoops, and you got to talk to the Speaker, and and you know have someone at the top sign off. And I believe that the body should work in a dynamic way where we bring ideas and the speaker or the leader of the party doesn't know what's going to happen.
1: Yeah, and like one process that was wonderfully open while we were there, most of it was not, it was the appropriations process, which you remember. And so, you and I would always both bring forth spending cuts in nearly every <laughs> single appropriations bill. I think we might have won like occasionally. We usually lost. Um uh but we always would bring forth these I thought sort of comments, but at least we were able to bring them forth and debate them. On most of the other bills, we couldn't even we couldn't even do that. So what you've seen in Congress uh, in the history is it, it was always in a way top down, but it changed from top down committee, committee chairman down mm-hmm. to party leadership. And I don't know which is better or which is worse. Neither of those are great. The real model should be more, you know, take advantage of the wisdom and deliberation of the body. Um, you know, either having strong committee chairman, who, by the way, were only there because they happen to have been there 30, 40 years. They're not necessarily, it's not a meritocracy, it's a gerontocracy, right? Um, Having strong committee chairman or strong party leadership, both of those, uh, in many ways, are not as functional as what we see in our state legislature or what Congress could be.
0: Yeah, I actually remember one of those spending cut amendments you did, and um, I just remember Republicans voting against it, and I was like, what are you guys doing? You talk about spending cuts, Um, and and here's Jared Polis with a spending cut, and people were voting against it. So, you know, it's easy for people at home who aren't following every single vote, especially these amendment votes, to have ideas about what the parties are doing and what particular representatives are doing. But like I said, sometimes your perception of things at home is not what is actually happening in reality. Um, And, you know, you mentioned the appropriations process being open. Unfortunately... And I've talked about this many times on this podcast and elsewhere. Starting with Paul Ryan, and it's continued now under Speaker Pelosi. Um, they've closed off the appropriations process too. Like the, it used to be an open process where you could come to the floor and offer an amendment, and even that's gone away. Which is, oh,
1: I remember they is, would even when it was open, they would try to do it like at eleven fifteen at night to try to get it through. without right. else. Being, you remember they did that all the time. Like that's when they want <laughs> they, they wanted to get it through, but. Uh, you had to show up because otherwise it was like, there's no amendments. We've never moved to close it. Uh, right. But at least you could. And, and we did often try to do that.
0: Right. And if you had to show up at two in the morning, then you did. But at least it was possible. So you've talked um, uh, in your state of wanting to reduce your income tax to zero. So I was curious, how would you fund government if the income tax went to zero?
1: yeah so we've and we 've cut it twice uh in my in my tenure as governor we, we 're we're, we're a low tax state, which is great it 's four point six three percent i don 't know what Michigan is, but a lot of our big competitors you know the states on the coast they're like ten twelve percent so we 're four point six three when I came in it 's now four point five percent that 's on a kind of temporary year by year basis uh it, we brought it permanently down to four point five eight and and hopefully permanently down to four point five there 's another reduction on the ballot this year permanent which um would bring that down more. Um, the but yeah, when I talk about getting rid of it, that's different I'm able to produ- because I' we're able to increase the efficiency of government and uh, we're doing well economically, we're able to do these modest reductions, which are wonderful, right? Let's bring it by all means, let's reduce taxes. When we talk about getting rid of it, it's a different conversation because what I'm trying to do there is say, let's whatever level of revenue you want, let's let's assume revenue neutral, right? like we're gonna want, this would ultimately have to be bipartisan Republicans and Democrats. so revenue neutral, let's just start with that. How, what form of taxation do we want to have to meet the revenue needs that we agree on? And, and it's a different conversation whether you want government bigger or smaller. That's why I'm saying for this one, let's just say revenue neutral. And for that conversation, uh, I don't think, I, I, I think the income tax is one of the worst taxes that we have because it taxes productivity. It taxes growth. It's the kind of the uh, You generally speaking, the you know, power to tax is the power to destroy, right? That was a supreme Supreme Court case. What what do you want less of? And so generally, uh, t- you should tax things that you want less of, and not things that you want more of, like income and growth. And so, uh, you know, we would love to shift the basis of taxation towards things that, as a state, as a society. More of us agree are negative things. it could even be negative externalities like pollution right that would be a wonderful uh, thing to uh, reduce the income tax and instead move that basis over to something that has a negative externality
0: to to what extent do you worry about when you start to tax things and pollution 's like a more obvious one why someone might want to tax pollution but um, you know i 've heard you discuss maybe taxing vices and things to what extent yeah. do you worry about the government getting too um, too much into the social engineering yeah. business where... It's
1: important, right? So, like, when we talk about it, and we did support, like, a tobacco one that, you know, and, and it, it's not about taxing it as a vice for the sake of being a vice. I'm not here to say it's a vice. You're not a vice. What it is, is about the, again, the negative externalities. If you smoke, your choice, in our state, marijuana, you know, tobacco, whatever you smoke, absolutely there are more costs that others bear. So, like, you will you know, lung cancer, shorter career, things that are, you know, bad for you first and foremost, but there is this reasonable nexus to a cost on society from from things that are individual decisions that are totally fine for people to make. You call it a vice, other people might call it a hobby, whatever it is, but we're just trying to say, look, your decision to smoke, that that that's fine, you can make it. But it does have these other ramifications in terms of cost of care and sickness and uh other things. And so it's reasonable to have um, you know, a, a uh a tobacco tax in that case, again, especially if it's replacing something like an income tax. But never at a level where it is somehow putting the government foot on the pedal saying we're effectively banning or, you know, doing this as a vice because we don't like it morally. But yes, absolutely, there were those in our coalition, Justin, and you would have appreciated this, in the coalition to get it done, there were those who were there from a moral perspective. They just don't like smoking, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I personally don't smoke, and I don't like smoking as an individual. That's not the role of the state. But in terms of accounting, they were there at the table, and they made very different arguments. But from our perspective, it was really about this is a cost and so why not try to move the basis of taxation over to something that's negative uh, rather than something like income?
0: We've got a caller, Andy, who's from Colorado. So I'm going to bring him on. Hey, Andy. You there, Andy? Yep. Sorry. I was uh, giving me permission for my microphone. Oh, no problem. <laughs> hey, Andy. Hello. Uh, I actually uh, met you, Justin, at Reno a couple weeks ago. Okay, uh, great. I am the uh, secretary of the Libertarian Party of Colorado. And so I, uh, I'm i actually a big fan of yours, Governor Polis, on certain issues. Like, your support for cutting state income tax as a Democrat is absolutely heroic. Um, but then there are other issues, like the COVID regime, where you called people selfish bastards for not following a policy that has been shown to not really do anything to reduce caseload. So how how do you balance your support for liberty with that kind of divisiveness?
1: Thank you, Andy. Great question. Thanks, um, Andy. Yeah, COVID was a really tough situation for the world, right? Um, and we've lost, you know, uh, now close to 15,000 Coloradans, um, and it's very much still with us you know where we handle this in the spectrum andy and i think you can appreciate this Is you know that we were we had less and shorter restrictions than uh, many other states um what i tried to do and what you just cited is i did try to use my bully pulpit for responsible decisions what i viewed based on the science at the time as responsible decisions meaning was i an advocate of vaccination absolutely we had i got vaccinated i did everything i do handstands to get people vaccinated we did not, as a state, have these kinds of, you know, mandates. Like I, I was in California for a time during it, and you, to go into a restaurant, I think you needed to sh- to show it. Um, we probably had some businesses that required it. That's that's fr- that's freedom. I mean, that's their choice. But we, there was not. And then on the mask side, we also had a much shorter required period uh, where there were masks. I, I I get I get that that was even a, a painful period for anybody. But we 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 got rid of that very early. Um, and I still encourage people to wear masks. And uh, I, I uh, you know, that is a, a, a um, you know, are they as effective as we liked? No. But does the science show that there's some efficacy there? It does. Um, I, you know, I don't wear them now myself. I've been vaccinated, but I totally support people's freedom to wear them. And there's been times that I've worn a mask. Um, and I certainly make no apologies for that. I try to model that behavior uh, and yeah, I used different like techniques to try to bring people along, so um if that offended anybody, I certainly apologize but I, I wanted to you know use both kind of what since we weren't doing it a lot on the requirement side, and by the way, like in many states, uh, um, uh, Adam, there were some jurisdictions in our state that had mass longer than than you know you or I would have would have necessarily liked um, it really just depended on the area, but yeah, I, I did try to use the bully pulpit to encourage. What, at the time, the science showed was the best possible behavior and and use the policy levers, our goal, which we were very transparent from the start we won 't avoid overwhelming our hospitals that 's kind of the public um, that was the public directive, and what we had to manage to we wanted to make sure that it didn 't you know an individual choice issue, but it becomes a societal issue if we can 't treat stroke or heart attacks or cancer. And we narrowly avoided that. Some areas didn't, but we were able to avoid overcrowding our hospitals, thankfully, um, during the period because a lot of Coloradans stepped up. But let's hope none of this ever happens again once in a century. There was no playbook. Uh, We did our best. We had a lower death rate, uh, more economic openness and freedom than most states. I certainly wouldn't argue that everything we did was perfect, but I, I did my best every day.
0: So I wanted to ask you, uh, Jared, or Governor—I um, don't know which one to call you call you by—but Jared, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you. Um, I saw this story where you gave clemency uh, to this truck driver who had been sentenced 110 years in prison, um, and it was a, a horrific accident. Right. And what was what was the mindset behind that?
1: Yeah, this was, um, and I took some heat for that and, and other, you know, other people appreciate it, but I really think this was the right thing. And it was, it was about a message as well. The merits of the case, of course, were what led to it. And, uh, but then the message is for prosecutors, uh, Justin, I think this is something you agree with. Go after the sentence and conviction that you actually want. Don't be the kind of dog that catches the car and doesn't know what to do with it. This was um, an order of magnitude beyond uh, any other type of Conviction for um, for this crime. This was this was some careless driving, some bad decisions. There was you know absolutely some some training issues there. There were decisions this, the truck driver made where he could have gone to an off ramp and didn't. It caused loss of life. It was really really tragic. He is going to jail. He deserves to go to jail. But you know it's a kind of thing that somebody goes to jail five or ten years for, not mm-hmm. hundred and ten years for. And so there was an outcry, a public outcry at the time because of the 110 years. And it was a it was a very reasonable public outcry. <laughs> There's, and, and then, you know, could they have potentially adjusted it through the court system? They potentially could have. But I also thought it was important, A, to address this this sort of uh, disparity of justice. And B, to send a message that prosecutors should really prosecute for the uh, the terms that they want, not not you know, start with something just as something for a plea bargain and and, and use it as a as leverage. Uh, you should really seek a punishment that fits the crime.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think there has been a lot of uh, abuse by prosecutors over the years, where they charge everything under the sun and then hope someone pleads or someone you know uh, gets something that sticks and. It's it's sad to see you know obviously we don't like to see anyone get killed by any accident but it's sad to see a young man you know get 110 years um, and, and especially when you like, look at just yeah.
1: the precedents you say look in these other no case is identical to be clear Justin and to be fair the right. victims but there's plenty of cases where there's this kind of sadly you know uh, careless driving loss of life. And you see other sentences that are nowhere near that magnitude, and you're like, wait a minute, this is a disparity, this is not just, Uh, and it's because of, as you said, the the particular charges that they were using.
0: Yeah. So I I feel like I have to ask you, because it's been such a big issue in the news, abortion is an issue that divides libertarians. There's historically been... Um, a lot of uh, pro-choice libertarians. Increasingly, I think there are more pro-life libertarians, but it's a, it's an issue that very much divides libertarians, and Colorado has very liberal abortion laws, and you've been quite supportive of, of those abortion protections. So what's your response to people who agree that women's rights are at stake? So they, they agree. They say, yes, women's rights are at stake here, and those are important. Uh, but they also believe that the unborn are persons deserving protection.
1: Yeah, I never thought I'd see the day where the Democratic Party was more pro-choice than the Libertarian Party, Um, because as you know, Libertarian was a staunch pro-choice party. Still is, but I mean... um at this point, there's more of a discussion. I I think those discussions are at the individual level, Justin, right? So this is, um, whether it's legal or not, right? It's an individual decision, right? Even in States where it's illegal, um, it's a decision somebody makes, it's illegal there, but you know, it's, it's a back alley, whatever it is, it's tragic uh, for everybody involved. Um, but this is something where it's really between a person, their doctor, their faith, it's the area, it's kind of area where government should tread very, very lightly. Um, and so that's kind of my value that informs why I'm pro-choice. Um, I just see this as, you know, offensive for the government to say this is the way you have to think about uh, about how or if life starts or when life starts because um, it's a very personal uh opinion that people have based on their faith, also based on medical opinions. Is it a viable fetus? Is there a risk of life to the mother? Uh, I don't think the government should be the judge and jury on that. Like, yes, it's enough risk to the mother where it's okay. Or, I mean, that's, that's not, that's not good um, to invite government, you know, into people, into women's
0: wombs. Now you've been mentioned many times as a future presidential candidate, and I I don't want to ask you right now whether whether you're going to run in the future. And I get that too, where people say, "Will you run for this office or that office in the future?" And and you know you're you're busy and you're doing um, uh, what you need to do for the people of Colorado. So like I'm not going to ask you whether you're going to. I'll run just say for if there's if there's president. a future
1: presidential candidate on this uh, podcast, it's going to be it's you. So that's that's, <laughs> that's, that's much more likely.
0: So, y- you are mentioned though, and the I think the reason you're mentioned is because you are doing things um, differently. You you are a more libertarian Democrat than most Democrats in um, in that particular office as governors throughout the country. You um, you don't seem to be trying to just go all out against the right, Um, I think you are trying to work with people across the political spectrum. What do you think the Democratic Party is getting wrong right now? Because the Democratic Party, uh, you know, we've talked about how there are certain policy positions where they are out there protecting individual rights and Republicans are not. But right now, And there are other issues where I think Republicans do a better job than Democrats, to be clear. And and I think libertarians probably do the best job on all this stuff. But whatever the case may be, right now the Democratic Party seems to be down in the polls relative to Republicans. And what do you think is causing that? And what do you think the Democrats can do better?
1: Well, I'm not a pundit, so I I, I couldn't really say. And also – I think one thing that – and you get this because you're a former Republican, but sometimes what libertarians don't get is that democrats and republicans are both striving to be a majority party. So they're never going to be as as pure. They're going to be – Yeah. One
0: I, Look, I 100 percent – Right. I agree with you on that, that libertarians too often are trying yeah. for the purity thing. And if you want to win elections, you have to – you have to have at least a third of the country with you or something like that.
1: Yeah. Well, frankly, Democrats and Republicans aim for 51%. So that's why they're, you know, they, they're not aiming for a third. Um, that's failure to them. They 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 somehow need to be broad, broad enough uh, to have 51%. So I mean, um, yeah, you know, I, I, um, I, I focus and I, I'd love to see national Democrats focus on saving people money, reducing costs. I think that's it's always, you know, a good issue. Um, we, even when I first took office, we focused on saving people money on healthcare. There's healthcare is just a mess. We could have a whole podcast on healthcare in this country, but I think all your listeners know, I mean, America's, we spend about twice the percentage of our GDP of every other country, and we're like in the middle of the pack of healthcare outcomes. We're just, just getting ripped off, and you can blame the way government programs work. That's part of it, but it's also the way the private sector works. It's just It's just a whole bunch of misincentives and disincentives. But yeah, I'd like to see focus on reducing costs. I mean, we've slashed everything from park passes here from $84 a year to $29 a year to a two-year property tax cut to... Um, sending refunds to folks, and, and we, cut, we did over 100 different, you know, cuts in, in fees and taxes and costs, and that's kind of what we've been elevating and, and focusing on. I'd I love to see that, you know, coming out of the, the Democrats more. Just to meet the moment, I mean, these are fine policies anytime, but, like, clearly the biggest frustration when people have is, Costs have gone up. It's not that they don't have a job. The economy is strong from that perspective right now, thankfully. But it's that you know, what does it mean? Where you know, my groceries cost thirty percent more. Gas is you know five dollars a gallon. This is this is not you know, I'm I'm struggling here. What can we do to cut costs?
0: So um, we're nearing the end of this uh, this interview, but. Do you still play any video games as governor?
1: Yeah, I play uh, – well, not as governor, <laughs> but under my anonymous handles, I do. Um, Le- <laughs> Le- you have- Le- yeah, people never know when they're playing with the governor. League of Legends is our main one that we play. Uh, which, yeah. ones, which ones do you play?
0: Well, I don't play as much as I used to. Like, Bioshock is one of my favorite video games, and I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, I, I love the game Bioshock. Uh, people like to think that it's uh, it's – a criticism of libertarianism, and I think actually it it shows what happens when you don't stick to your principles. Um, but that's a, that's a a fantastic game, and from time to time I'll play video games with my kids, like you know Mario Kart and some of the old school Nintendo games.
1: They're all into things, yeah. Isn't that great? So our, our son is still in the space, but yeah, we the, into the old the, the Nintendo's you and I grew up with. He's likes playing a lot of those kind of retro games. Um, where right. I can hold my own in the new games on. The um, on those systems, I'm not as good. I'm more of a PC gamer, so um, you know that. So like StarCraft, uh, Warcraft, Age of Mythology, League of Legends, those are the main ones.
0: Yeah. So I was um, I was in Colorado uh, last year, and I went to Casa Bonita, um, and I took I just took a tour. Um, I I assume you've been there, right?
1: Absolutely, many times. uh, (laughs) Yeah. In fact, Matt and Trey. Broke the news that they were buying it on. I had uh, we set up a little like fake talk show for them. So my one episode of my talk show that I was the host of, we had Matt and Trey, and they got to break the news that they bought Casa Bonita, which is pretty cool.
0: Yeah, and I'd love to go back when they when they reopen. I think they're still working on that, correct?
1: Yeah, exactly. It should be better. Like I grew up with it. You know, you went there as a kid. Brought our kids there. It was never known for its food, and that's putting it mildly. It had, you know, but it was for the experience. And now what we're hoping is that they bring in, like, a better culinary and food side and up up the act on the performance side. It was basically, like, which is kind of, it was, when I was growing up, it was really, like, fun to go to. Like, for our kids, it was almost on the border of kitschy, right? Like, this was, like, <laughs> it had not been, it was the same exact shows that I had been to as a kid. Like, they hadn't changed it from, like, the, you know, 80s or 90s.
0: Yeah, when I went there, all I could do was a tour, so I couldn't actually enjoy it the way that other people have enjoyed it. But if you, um, if you're there for the grand opening and you want to invite a former congressman to attend with you, I would be happy to be there, uh, because I was very fascinated even by the tour. Just, like, how, old are, was, how old are
1: your kids now? I know they're older, but how, my 200? kids
0: are, uh, 17, 14, and 12.
1: Okay. So they're still, I think, especially, yeah, they'd still like it. I'll I'll let you know when it happens, and and maybe it could be an excuse to bring them out to Colorado, too. I think they'd enjoy it also.
0: Oh, I'd love to do that. Well, Jared, um, it's been great talking to you. I really do appreciate that you joined me today. Um, You're one of the people I really wanted to have on this podcast because uh, you were a great friend in Congress and a great ally on so many issues. So,
1: Well, don't be a stranger. I'm sure I'll see you in person soon. I think I narrowly missed you last time you were here, but we'll get you back, and um, we'll we'll look forward to seeing you soon.
0: All right. Governor Jared Polis, thanks so much. Thanks, Justin.